Well, brothers and sisters, let's turn this morning to Matthew 2. God speaks to us in the visible word of baptism, but now also through the spoken word in Matthew 2. And may he indeed open our hearts and bless us through this marvelous passage, painful, but also marvelous and full of grace. As we read through it, remember that the father protected baby Jesus for his calling, for our salvation. God's at work here through these terrible things. We'll be looking not at the terrible things of the last half, but the magi coming to worship Jesus in the first half. But I would like to read the whole chapter. Matthew 2, page 960 in your pew Bibles. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he'd been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or younger or under, according to the time that had been ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. 
And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Especially, verse 11, and going into the house, they, the Magi, saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him, then opening their treasures They offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. May God bless this word to our hearts and lives. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, this is a dangerous passage. Not because of what it contains so much as because our curious minds and distracted hearts are tempted to make all kinds of speculations who these magi were, what the star was, and get lost, you might say, in the weeds and miss the glory and miss the work of God and the grace of God. Was it Halley's Comet that appeared to the Magi? Was it a conjunction of the planets? Was it a supernova? Or was it an extraordinary heavenly light specially placed there by God? We don't know, it's likely the last. God's in charge of the stars. He can put lights wherever he wants, like he did when the glory of the Lord shone around the shepherds on the night Jesus was born. But put that all aside, what is this passage really about? Why did the Holy Spirit put it here? Why did he tell Matthew to write this? Not to arouse curiosity, not to fan flames of speculation. It's a call to worship. It's a call to worship. That's what we want to see in this passage, Jesus for the Gentiles. First, a strange journey. And then secondly, joyful worship. And thirdly, expensive gifts. A strange journey. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, Matthew 2, verse 1 of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born, the king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. It's a strange journey led by a strange light. Sometimes these wise men, or in the Greek, magi, are called the three kings. But they were likely not kings, and we don't know whether there were three or more or less. One of the early church fathers said there was 14. Well, I don't think he knew that for sure either. We just don't know how many. And then we often call them wise men. But what does that mean? The Greek, again, is the word magi. 
a group of so-called wise men from the east, likely Babylon, which by then had become Persia, which is now Iraq. We don't know exactly where they're from, but that's where we would guess. And magi, or wise men, like in the court of Nebuchadnezzar, were sorcerers. Hey, like these weren't the best guys around. They were wizards, divining direction and wisdom from the stars, star worshipers, a mixture of astronomer and astrology. So they, scientists in a way, studying the stars, but also star worshipers, divining direction and fortune telling from the patterns of the stars and the constellations. They're pagans. They're not looking for direction from God's word, the Bible, the infallible word of God. They're looking for direction from creation, from the stars. So they're involved in a kind of witchcraft or magic or sorcery that the Bible clearly condemns both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. These are sinners who need a savior. These guys are the kind of magicians, enchanters, and sorcerers that Daniel speaks about, that Nebuchadnezzar, pagan king of Babylon, commanded to tell me what my dream was. Well, we, we, we can't tell you. It took the wisdom of Daniel's God. Well, brothers and sisters, this kind of magic which looks for signs and directions from stars or Ouija boards or tarot cards or palm readings, which are making their revival again in our culture, is not light, it's darkness. Jesus is the light. He's the way, the truth, and the life. But what's completely shocking is that God takes their craft, puts a special light in the sky, and uses that, the heavens declare the glory of God, to lead them to Jerusalem to find out from the scriptures who this king is. It's shocking how God works. He's got all creation at his disposal. And he uses it. So he supernaturally uses a star, whether he read redirected an existing star or planted a supernova or made his own light. We, again, we don't know. He made the star so he can do anything he wants. But he led them to the true light of the world to worship Jesus. Isn't this a clear reminder of how God calls all peoples, Jews and Gentiles, from all walks of life, from all different religions and idolatries, to leave their idolatry, to leave their false religions and bow before King Jesus, King of the Jews, that is King who came from the Jews for the world. Because the King of the Jews is not for Jews only. He is the Savior of the world. He's for the Gentiles too. And this is a clear sign of God. You know, sometimes in our culture, we think of God as a multi-faith God. 
Jews are saved this way. Muslims are saved this way. Christians are saved a third way. Hindus are saved in their way. But all roads lead to God. No. All roads lead to hell. Except for one. Jesus. Jesus is the only way to God. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He said, no one comes to the Father except through me. So he's calling all people to come to Jesus. And the coming of the Magi from Iraq, from Persia, is a sign that all nations are being called to the light of Jesus and to worship him alone. That's the only way for Maxwell to be saved. And Maxwell's parents, and his grandparents, and his pastor, and all of us. Putting your trust in Jesus, worshiping him. So it's an amazing journey. It's completely miraculous. Why on earth should Magi from the East a group of sorcerers engaged in fortune-telling come to Jerusalem to ask about a baby king and then go on to follow the star to Bethlehem and worship him, and the answer is because of God. Now, just a bit of an aside, if you read Luke, he completely skips all this stuff about the Magi, about the flight to Egypt and going from Bethlehem to Nazareth through Egypt. He completely skips all that. He has the Holy Family go from Bethlehem to Jerusalem on day 40 for the purification of the mother and the child, meet Simeon and Anna, and then it says after these things, they go back to their home in Nazareth doesn't say they go immediately, he just skips by all that. On the other hand, Matthew doesn't include the shepherds coming to the manger. How do we understand that? Most importantly, the things they do right agree with each other, but they don't all include the same materials. John Calvin wrote this, the Spirit of God who appointed the gospel writers to be his clerks appears purposely to have regulated their style in such a manner that they all wrote one and the same history with the most perfect agreement, but in different ways. It was intended that the truth of God should more clearly and strikingly appear when it was manifest that his witnesses did not speak by a prearranged plan. I think this is really important. They didn't speak by a prearranged plan. Hey, let's get our materials together and make sure we all agree. This is inspiration. But each of them spoke separately without paying any attention to the other. They were writing freely and honestly what the Holy Spirit dictated. And so they complement each other. They don't contradict each other. And what's Matthew's point? Matthew is writing to Jews, primarily. To Jews who 
often exclude Gentiles and say, no, no, Jesus for the Jews only. And Matthew's writing to his Jewish community saying, "Uh uh-uh. Jesus is both for Jews and for Gentiles. All are called. That's why he ends with that great commission where Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth are given to me. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Make disciples of all nations. That's how he ends. He begins by saying, yes, God gave a sign of this right at the beginning when the nations came from the east to worship Jesus, baby Jesus. Jesus is for the Gentiles too, not just for the Jews. The Magi are God's sign to Israel that God is gathering a family of Jesus from all nations. Now, Alex and Samantha, you probably are Gentiles. Are you? This is written for us. Jesus is for the Gentiles and for our households. He came not just for the Jews to save them, but for us too. And the gospel has traveled from the Middle East, across North Africa, through Europe, but also to India, but now across the pond to North America and South America, and we get to be included. It's it's shocking, it's amazing, and this is how God did it. Strange journey. Leading them to joyful worship, secondly. So led by God who put a strange star in the sky, they made a strange journey from the east. They stopped at Jerusalem to seek more information about this child. We don't know whether the star led them directly all the way to Jerusalem or they just led by God discerned, this must be a king in Israel, let's go to the capital city. But it did lead them directly from Jerusalem. They saw it at first. It did lead them directly from Jerusalem, those five miles to Bethlehem, and then stood above the house where Jesus was. By that time, he had moved from a stable or a cave with a manger to a house in Bethlehem where they lived for a time. Anyway, they stop at Jerusalem. They get information from the chief priests and the scribes who were Bible scholars, and they had the 39 scrolls of the Old Testament. And they said, where is the king of the Jews to be born? We've come to worship him. Well, they know the answer, it seems, quite quickly. They're scholars afterward. And from the scroll of Micah, they say that Christ would be born in Bethlehem in the land of Judah. Matthew gives an approximate Quote, not an exact one to give the sense. Then Herod found out. 
He has a meeting behind closed doors with the Magi to find out when the star first appeared. Then he sends them off to Bethlehem with instructions to to let him know where the child was so he could go and worship him too. Of course, that's all a fraud. He wants to kill the child. And then they go and they worship here. Now, people of God, here's another shock. Does Herod say, let me come with you right now and worship Jesus? No. It's maybe not so surprising. He's not a Jew. He's a tyrant. He's all in it for himself. But the chief priests and the scribes are the people of the covenant who are waiting for the long-expected Messiah to come. They get this news from the Magi. They look it up and apparently make no attempt to go and join. We want to go with you. We've been waiting for this king. Appears to be zero interest. In fact, they get all stirred up along with Herod. Nothing about worshiping Jesus. It's the Gentiles. Based on very little gospel information. Who travel hundreds of miles and with eagerness and joy follow the star and they go into the house and they worship Jesus and they've already said in Jerusalem we have come to worship him it's shocking again because the ones who should be flocking there are the guys in Jerusalem the religious leaders the ones who actually go are The sorcerers whom God is calling to worship his son. These men who are so far away from the covenant. We read that in verse 9. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Not excited about the star, but it was leading them right to the place. Isaiah prophesied an event like this 700 years earlier. Let me read from Isaiah 60. Where God says to Jerusalem, to to Israel, the church. And nations shall come to your light. And kings to the brightness of your rising. You shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult. Because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. So they're so excited. We have four levels of joy. They're joyful. They have great joy. They rejoice with great joy. They rejoice exceedingly with great joy. And they fell down and worshiped. And that means they fell on their faces. And we don't know if it's genuine worship of faith or general worship of honoring someone very important. We're not given those details. The Spirit's point is Christ is God with us, worthy of worship by both Jews and Gentiles. Come and bow down. 
And that line there, we have come to worship him. In verse 2. It's found all over the Old Testament. Gentiles coming to worship. Think of all the effort, all the expense, all the joy to come. What about us? Do we worship Jesus? Oh, you say, I believe he's an important person. Yeah, but do you worship him? Well, well, sometimes I say a prayer. No, no, no. Do you worship him? Put on your clothing. Get on your camel or in your car. Drive the distance. Gather with God's people. To offer him gifts. Bring him praise. And with exceeding joy, bow before him. The Bible says, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Jesus is worth a lot of effort. Not only because he came as a baby, but he went on to die for our sins. That's the place to put all your sin, get rid of it. And rose again to give you new life. That's the place to get a whole new life, Jesus. And then went and ascended into heaven on day 40. He opened a gate, a door to heaven for us and prepared a place. And one day we'll come back. That's the, he's the way to get a place with God eternally in heaven. And yet so often... People have never heard of him first here and they're so enthusiastic and we who have kind of grown up with it say ho-hum, time to go to church. Do you worship him? Do we say to the kids, time to go to church or we get to meet Jesus, let's go. So the Bible says that when the church is assembled, that's when the power of Jesus is present. That's the most important way to meet, place to meet Jesus. They came to worship. I just can't stop being shocked by this passage and what happened and what God was doing and telling us. That's the moment where God gave the first clear sign that Jesus is for us to worship too. And here we are. Two point three billion worshipers of Jesus around the world, at least in name. Now, sadly, many aren't. True worshipers, maybe just in name, but maybe a billion serious worshipers. It's the work of God. Well, let's see, thirdly, Jesus is for the Gentiles who bring him expensive gifts. Then opening their gifts, 11b, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. 
Now, ancient tradition teaches that gold stands for a king, frankincense for deity, and myrrh as ointment for burial. They're preparing him for his death. Now, that's tradition. We don't know that for sure. But we do know they took very expensive gifts with them. They came a long distance, and they worshiped Jesus, offering their treasures to him. This is the last of four acts of worship. First, they ascribe authority to him by calling him king of the Jews. Then they ascribe dignity to him by falling down before him in worship. Then they ascribe joy when they do this all with great joy. And then they offer him gifts and in so doing describe or ascribe great worth to him. His worthiness. Brothers and sisters, gifts are not given to bribe God, but just to declare his worth. Giving is not buying a place in heaven. The gospel is not about how much I give to Jesus, but God gave himself to us. That's what saves me. He came down for me. He gave his life for me. He stood in my place in my sin. He stood under God's wrath for me in my judgment to set me free. That's salvation, what God gives to me, not the, the presence I bring to him. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift, says the apostle. But why did we bring offerings today for the general fund and Hispanic Christian ministries? It's a pledge of our love. This much I love you because you first loved me. I can't pay you back, Lord, but I can express my love. Congregation, as we look over the financials for 2023 at Providence, we're so thankful for the love for Jesus expressed over years of years faithful giving here. And you know, Jesus is worth it all. Praise his name. But even these gifts are just a pledge of giving our whole life to him. Let's give him our whole life. Isaac Watts put it this way. If the whole realm of nature was mine, that were a present far too small. God's love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Paul writes, in view of the mercies of God, brothers, offer your body as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. And sometimes we just want to give a small portion of our lives to God. You can have this part, Lord, but stay out of this part. This is for me. You're not welcome here. But true faith and worship says, I give my whole life to you. I surrender my all to you. I'm yours. Change me where I need to be changed. Cause me to grow in every way. We offer ourselves to him because he's worthy. Paul said that. I want God to be exalted in my body, whether by my life or by my death. I don't know which is easier, living for Jesus or dying for Jesus. Because living for Jesus has all kinds of troubles and obstacles, right? Challenges and temptations. But Paul says, God, if you want me to die for you, I'm yours. If you want me to live for you and serve you, I'm yours. But 
whether I live or die, I just want you to be exalted in my body. Well, may Maxwell and all of us offer our whole life to Jesus because he's worth it. And God is calling us to mission here. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Do you have people in your neighborhood still worshiping false gods? Go to them. Tell them about Jesus. Invite them with you to church. Come and worship Jesus with me. Because he's the only way. He's the only one worthy of our worship. Praise God that Jesus is for the Jews and for the Gentiles. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for giving us your holy word. Thank you for that day that you sent the Magi to Bethlehem to worship Jesus. We are so thrilled by your grace and moved by what you did in them as a sign of what would you, you would do later in calling so many from so many nations to come and worship Jesus. Continue to do that work in us and through us to others that all nations will come and bow down before the living God. In Jesus we pray this, amen.